Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. This is the John Fugelsang Podcast. This is SiriusXM Progress. I'm John Fugelsang. So in 2022, political newcomer Devante Lewis was elected to represent District 3 on the Louisiana Public Service Commission. That's the body that regulates the, the public utilities for most of the citizens of Louisiana. Uh, he is now just one of five elected officials who's in charge of overseeing the utilities across the state. But more than that, he, as you may have read in the media, is the first openly LGBTQ person elected to a statewide office in Louisiana, and he is the first black LGBTQ person elected to any political office in Louisiana at any level. He is a rising star in Democratic politics because he has a really radical take on human rights. He views utilities as human rights, and he's a great communicator as well. It's a real pleasure to welcome Commissioner Devante Lewis to Sirius XM. Thank you so much. It's so great to join you and be with you today. Thank you, sir. What a pleasure. Uh, you ran on a progressive platform in the state of Louisiana. You, you promised to expand renewables. You promised to transition to a renewable grid. You talked about codifying a bill of rights for utility ratepayers, And you talked about prohibiting the commissioners from taking political contributions from the companies they're supposed to regulate, like Energy Corp. You didn't accept any donations from utilities when you ran. I've got to say, Commissioner, this would seem like a really obvious policy, that it's not good civics to let commissioners in charge of utilities take donations from the people they're supposed to regulate. And yet, <laughs> there's no such policy. It, it, what kind of struggle are you facing to try to get this common sense approach across to the voters? Well, absolutely. I mean, I think as many would say, it sounds reasonable here in Louisiana. If you're on the uh, gaming control board, you're not allowed to take money from the casinos. If you're on the horse race tracking board, uh, you're not allowed to take uh, money from from horse racers and gamblers. Uh, Even if you're in the Louisiana legislature, you're not allowed to take any campaign donations while the session is actively going. But here, if you're on the Public Service Commission, you can take up to a $5,000 check from the very company that you are supposed to be regulating. And the only prohibition we have is that that check can't come two days before or two days after a commission meeting. And so uh, we've been working very hard on this uh, just uh, this past uh, week. Um, I passed a directive, which is our rulemaking process at the commission, um, to start to examine to ensure no utility dollars that people pay in their utility bills are going towards political spending. That is lobbying, Mm -hmm. uh, associations, C3 contributions, C4 contributions, 
um, that may be uh, uh, advertising and very much well what we like to say astroturfing because I want to remind people in Louisiana it was found out that Intergy New Orleans had paid protesters to go to the city council to talk against a proposal that would make <laughs> them have to be fair to their people. So this is the real problem here. Yeah. And, and again, this is also, if you don't mind my saying, historically a problem in the Democratic Party, you know, dynamic reformers like yourself. And then we have the problem occasionally of Democratic incumbents who are part of this culture where they're prioritizing the utilities profits over the health and safety of their citizens. And you only took individual donations uh, when you ran. I'm, I'm very curious. What was it that prompted your decision to run for this office. I, I know that you first got a real taste of uh, what this job could do when you lost power during Hurricane Ida. Right, absolutely. And I mean, I think uh, that was it. Uh, I, I beat an 18-year incumbent who had been in this position, uh, and, and I felt he was just too close to the utilities. And I mean, in the campaign shows that, as you mentioned, I took no money from them. 95% of every donation he had in his campaign came from uh, one of the utility companies. And even wild about when we talk about the Democratic Party, when we were when we forced them into a runoff and they That's had right. already maxed out all of their donations to him, you know what the utility companies did? They donated to the Louisiana Democratic Party, which used their money to spend uh, ads and mailers and text messages against me, That's right. who was also endorsed by the party. But first they endorsed you, sir, and then they endorsed your opponent after that. And then we found out right. that they had gotten the donations. It was they, they literally unendorsed you because they were paid to by the people they're supposed to regulate. This is the kind of corruption that alienates people of all political backgrounds. Absolutely. And this is part of the catalyst that made me run was um, I, I, we were watching after Hurricane Ida and, and Louisiana, as you know, climate change means we're going to see a, a, a severe hurricane probably every two years, uh, yes. uh, just just in reality. Um, and so when we are talking about a utility company that tells everybody that if there's a category one hurricane, which is, is, is really weak and we don't see that much often anymore, is a week about power. What does that mean when a hurricane like Hurricane Ida or Hurricane Ian hits, which are category four and five? Yeah. Um, and so that plus the frustration of the rising uh, utility bills we saw last summer, which was due to the dependence of our power grid being solely relied on natural gas. And when natural mm -hmm. gas goes up, whether it's because of the war in Ukraine or supply and demand, uh, that's a direct pass through to people's bills. I, I think that is something we forget is it, it literally goes from whatever natural gas wants to charge and it goes straight to your bill, regardless that's right. of any that's right. kind of uh, hedging to protect and ensure you can afford your bills. And I said, well, if no one is standing up to these companies and to our for our environment, somebody has to speak up. And so my district starts in Baton Rouge. It ends in New Orleans. But I have what is called Cancer Alley. I represent the vast right. majority of America's Cancer Alley. And and what I tell people why this is so important, Shell has only four petrochemical refinery plants left in the United States. Three of them are in my district. Amazing. Yeah, it's a, it's a wild fact when you think about a giant corporation like Shell worldwide, uh, they're having four petrochemical refinery plants worldwide, and three, <laughs> and three of, of them, them are in South Louisiana in, in part of the blackest portions of the state of Louisiana.
what a shock, sir. What a shock. I mean, but this is this is the nuts and bolts of politics that shows how local office holders affect our lives much more than presidents or, or senators. And and I, I you've pointed out in the past that your commission doesn't have the direct authority to stop companies like the one in Cancer Alley from setting up all these shops. But your commission does have the power to regulate the electricity grid, which is totally dependent on fossil fuels. So it's like you've got to go around the problem to begin to solve the problem. Right. And and this is this is the challenge that we also talk about. And so um, as I beat up on Shell, let me applaud Shell. Shell has been trying to stop flaring um, and protecting the environment. But here's one of the things that people uh, don't know about why the power grid has to be more reliable and we should use renewable energy and not just natural gas. So um, for a 10 second glitch in electricity services to one of the Shell plants in my district, it right. requires maybe up to 10 days worth of flaring because of what it does to their system. So this is the system is interconnected. So if we want to stop CO2 emissions and stop the pollution, we also have to invest in a, a power grid that is sustainable and reliable because every time that grid glitches means we're actually hurting people's health. And I don't think we should That's be right. putting my people in, in this predicament saying either you have electricity or you die from air pollution. And again, just so Americans understand what we're talking about here, when you say flaring, that's when when the grid has a glitch. These petrochemical plants, they they shoot fire and chemicals into the sky. That's what flaring is, right? They're burning off the excess right. gas yeah. and chemicals. Yes, exactly. And so it is when I, when I represent Cancer Alley, it is important. Renewable energy is not just about uh just being green, it's actually about the health and safety of my people because uh, they are dying at high proportional rates of cancer, uh, and it's caused by admissions, and we can curb admissions at these plants simply by making sure the power grid stays on. But see, that that's what I love, because I, I got to be honest, we don't really talk about what utility regulators do that much in national political media discourse. But I mean, the PSC has five officials. Y'all hold six year terms and you guys are in charge of regulating the water, the sewage, the gas, some of the pipelines and transportation, the telecommunications. But I think what's caught the public's imagination with your campaign and your leadership style is that you don't really you don't call these utilities. You call these human rights services that people need to survive. Absolutely. And I mean, I think that is a I've been told by my, my fellow commissioners across the country and then people who've worked in this very small family of utility regulation and utility um, industry. That's a very radical view to have, which to me seems like common sense to say that uh, you should be entitled to clean uh, air and fresh water uh, and and a cool house in the summer and a warm house in the winter. But sadly, that is not the reality. Um, yeah. And so this is why it's important to put to bring awareness to what public utilities commissions or public service commissions, depending on the states you live in, um, do, because we have so much power to make people's lives better and give them necessities. Um, and, and I wanted to focus on that and letting all of my regulated entities know that I don't view this as a commodity. I view this right. as a human right, which means I'm going to be extra strict and prudent on what is your reasonable spending and how are you improving your services, not just improving your bottom line.
You know, and it seems so obvious at a time when we debate, well, can we call health care a human right? Can we call housing a human right? You're talking about basically having fresh air and clean water and a warm place in the winter as being a fundamental human right. I, I do think that life and the pursuit of happiness might cover that. It does seem like it's exactly the kind of mindset that voters would respond to and that I think you could actually get some progress in our democracy with. Absolutely. And I think that is why um, it's it's amazing to me uh, six months after this election now, um, the response that we got. I I told you in the beginning, we beat an 18 year incumbent by nearly 20 points. And I have met so many people up and down um, who have said, hey, this is the first time that at Christmas after the election, my parents and I got together and we talked about current events and found out that we voted for the same person. Um, because because <laughs> it was about talking about the issues, and it's about mm-hmm. this is this is common sense. The utility regulation and 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 your right to electricity and water is it, it, not a liberal or conservative idea. It is just a human idea. That's it. And again, what's so inspiring is they're not talking about your LGBTQ identity. They're not talking about your African-American identity. They're talking about your human rights crusade as a public servant. And I think that's where you have created so much progress by (laughs) focusing on the issues and letting the identity politics fall by the way. I mean, I'm sorry, but you you were elected in Louisiana, sir. You have no idea how patriotic this makes me feel. (laughs) <laughs> oh, and that's what I told people. I mean, I think this is the beauty of it. And, and, and what I want people to recognize from my election is that you do not have to hang your hat on on identities. A- a- am I a proud black man? Yes. Am I proud to be LGBTQIA plus? Yes. Uh, am I proud to be a young uh, person in, in, in leadership? Yes. But what I did is I said, I am going to show you that I can be everything that I am, but I'm here to talk about with you because there is no way to regulate your utilities in a gay or straight way. There's no way to regulate your <laughs> utilities in a black or white way. Uh, I can't say, well, because you're, you're gay, I'm going to give you a 10% discount on your utility bills. Uh, it doesn't work like that. And so what I wanted to show is that you can be proud of who you are, but if you if you connect to the humanity in us all, which That's we it. all have a slither of humanity, We can really make progress. And if we get back to doing that, uh, we find out that a lot of people who we think may disagree with us and may want to target us actually may work with us. And so there's a lot of conservatives who who have you talked about gay issues or or critical race theory or Black Lives Matter would have a lot of issues with me. But Mm -hmm. one thing they'll tell you is I'm working hard for them to make sure that their utility bills are as affordable, reliable and sustainable as possible. Amen. But here's the deal. Here's where the entire Democratic Party needs to lean in, because you did this while calling for a Green New Deal in Louisiana, one of the biggest oil and gas states we have. We're going to take a very quick break. We'll be right back. This is progress. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued 
at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. I'm John saying This is Progress After Dark. What has been the response of your constituents when you talk not so much about environmental justice or climate goals, but when you actually talk about holding utility companies accountable? It, it changes. And this is the thing that I think I think part of the problem that has happened in the Democratic Party and, and, and in progressive politics is we become too academic and yeah. we're looking yeah. for the right way to say the right term. For instance, my constituents may not really understand climate change in terms of the way that we talk about it, but they understand that. Hey, the hurricanes are getting stronger. The summers are getting warmer. The winters are getting colder. uh, The floods are getting bigger. Um, And so when you connect to them on that way, they are saying, yes, what should we do? And then I remind them that, hey, if we add wind and solar and battery storage to our utility grid, it creates a more resilient system because, hey, if the power goes out and you have a battery storage, you may get seven to eight hours a right. power to keep your medicine cool or to keep your children's food uh, together or keep your house uh, cool so you can sleep through the night. And you see a difference. And so I think what it is, is we got to stop trying to message to to the TV and message to a soundbite on Twitter and just talk to people. And when you talk to them about the issues and you talk to them about utilities, uh, you see it cuts cross and it resonates because it is real issues and people are like, Yes, add solar and wind. When I talk about a Green New Deal, you know, in an oil and gas state, I make sure that I talked about this is investing in green jobs because for so long, the only talking point that oil and gas would make in our state is we provide jobs. We jobs, provide jobs, jobs. jobs. Yeah. And I want to and I want to say, hey, there are great paying jobs in the solar market. There are great paying jobs uh, in, in, in offshore wind development that we're trying here in Louisiana and battery storage. And so my if you look on my campaign website, we talked about it, about the investments in our communities. And, and people are like, yes, I, I want cleaner air and cleaner water. And but I want to ensure that people can still have a good paying job. And so it's connecting that our issues are not just these liberal pie in the skies, but they are going to make a significant difference for your health, for your financial stability and for our state's prosperity. Well, let me ask you about that, then, because you're one of two Democrats that are actually on Louisiana's Public uh, Service Commission. Um, and I think there's one sane-ish Republican as well. So it's not quite a majority. It's sort of two and a half or three out of five. But given that makeup, I'm, I'm very curious, what can be realistically accomplished as a commissioner? And how has it been for you so far working with your Republican commissioner counterparts? Yeah, I mean, I think it is. I mean, the the, the the curse of this is most utility regulation is is not really partisan. I mean, it's really on who do you want to put the risk on? Would you rather uh, say, hey, I want to protect an investor-owned utility or, 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 or a monopoly, or do I really kind of want to protect people? And so it's a, it, it, it waffles, right, because right. it's kind of who – where do you put that trust? It's not so much kind of the partisan issues of the day that you would see in a legislature or in a Congress. But we've been able to find ways to work together on a host of issues. I 
supported and, and passed a resolution in support uh, a DOE grant for one of our utility companies for one of the poorest neighborhoods in the state and in my district on a unanimous vote. Uh, we created a, a three-person alliance uh, last week, to, as I talked about earlier, to get your utility bills out of political spending. I um, mean, we brought a Republican on board with us. Um, we were able to elect uh, Foster Campbell, who's a longtime Democrat in this state, been elected since 1971, uh, former candidate for governor and United States senator. We elected him chair for the first time with a Republican uh, joining us. And so we are finding ways to move this agenda. We are being very um, aggressive on energy efficiency and, and holding the utility companies accountable to ensure uh, that they are helping weatherize people's homes by making sure they have great installation and smart lighting to ensure that their bills go down. And so uh, thus far, we have made a lot of progress in Louisiana and the work has just started. Now, as they say, however, the measure of a country is not by how it treats its highest citizens, but its lowest ones. That's Nelson Mandela's standard. And I want to take a moment to praise you for the work you have done for incarcerated citizens and their families. I got to say, it's amazing how much is covered by the PSC. I didn't realize that you cover issues like phone rates in jails and prisons. That's covered by the Public Service Commission. Um, Why did that first catch your attention? I think it's very easy for the public to not know how people can be gouged by phone bills for inmates. Right. I think, I mean, this is the, this is the challenge. It, 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 the average call for 15 minutes for, for someone incarcerated can go upwards to seven to, to, to $14. Um, and when you think about someone incarcerated, there's research that shows that someone incarcerated was making about $20,000 prior to their incarceration. So if you apply that 15-minute phone call per day, per year, there are families in my state, which the average income is less than $50,000, who would spend yeah. more than half, more than half of their yearly income just communicating with their loved one. And, and I, as something else radical about me, believe human interaction is a right. It is not a yeah. privilege to have social engagement. And so when we are talking about reducing recidivism, when we're talking about yes. my state, which at one point in the world was the, the incarceration capital of the world, where we had more people incarcerated per capita here in Louisiana than any other place in the world, this is important because we can't talk about crime as everyone wants to talk about now and, and not and not stop it. I mean, if I'm in prison, I would be upset if I can't talk to my child about their graduation, if I can't talk to my mother about That's her right. illness, if I can't communicate with my spouse about just, hey, how are things going? And so if we really want to talk about rehabilitation, uh, we should make it easier for people to communicate. And so that's why I care so much about this issue. But also I wanted to make sure as technology changes, we didn't find a way to 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 gouge people um, as we're seeing that it may be more beneficial to use video calling um, and and engaging right. um, with cell phones, which are now starting to become acceptable in some prisons. And, and for me, this is also a workforce issue. Think about it. If I've been incarcerated, for 15 years and you want me to get a job and I'm required to use an iPhone uh, and no one taught me, I'm making it a lot harder for these people to succeed uh, right. because I'm not providing. And so for me, this is not just about the human right. It's about 
It's about how do we prepare uh, for those who are incarcerated to come back into society. And so being able to utilize a computer for video calling or a cell phone for interaction or maybe text messaging helps prepare them to come back into our workforce right. and into society because exactly. now they have the skills. Because you're not hiring anybody if you don't know how to work a laptop or know how to text. Let's just be honest about that. Yeah. And yeah. so what are we doing to these individuals when we do not even – and what should be their rehabilitation stage, provide them those services. And so that's why um, I'm pushing so hard to to lower the rates here in Louisiana, but more importantly, to make sure that we are setting them up for success upon uh, the completion of their sentencing. And I love it. It's not just good morality, it's good economics as well. Uh, Commissioner Lewis, here's the million-dollar question I want to ask you. Is there ever any condition in civic life where it's morally acceptable to disconnect people's utilities i don't <laughs> i have failed to see it i've had this this conversation uh with 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 the, with the utility companies they 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 argue that they is they don't see a reason to disconnect and so i always say well if you don't want to disconnect why do you do it um but mm-hmm. i think it is part of just our punitive nature in america of the way we get people to do things is this way and and, and i i can never uh, in good faith. See, I believe uh, disconnections on face value should be abolished. Um, I know I may be a lone <laughs> voice uh, in yeah. that crusade, so I'm working on different ways because I'm a person who believes a half a loaf is better than no loaf at all. So I'm looking at ensuring that if you are on some type of a governmental program, whether that be WIC or SNAP or Medicaid expansion, that you are not eligible uh, for disconnection. Um, that we create a a kind of re-enrollment process where instead of disconnecting, we automatically uh, enroll you into programs that can help uplift you um, and give you the supplemental support. There are so many other great tools that we can do to ensure that people uh, can get on their feet and that the utility company can stay whole rather than disconnecting. Because for me, a disconnection also creates more problems. It is more costly for the utility company. And then it's also more costly for the human being who now has to pay a reconnect fee, wait for the services to come back on. The utility company has to send somebody back on. So it's not even economical from a utility standpoint to to disconnect people. So let's not do it and let's find other ways to ensure that you can be made whole, but people can have the utilities they need to survive. Uh, Commissioner, before I let you go, I was very sorry to see that um, this new bill – broadly banning K-12 through public school employees in Louisiana from discussing gender identity or sexual orientation in the classroom, virtually identical to the despicable don't say gay law in Florida, has been making its way through Louisiana's legislature. Uh, it's a very ugly piece of legislation. Well, actually, it, it, our, our legislature ended last week and it did pass, um, it did pass. the Senate. However, right after the session, um, our governor, John Bell Edwards, has indicated that he will veto um, this bill and we'll we'll see um, the official veto hopefully in the next week or two. Um, but it, it's once again just a, a distraction of, 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 of stories um, with no real implication other than fear. Um, yeah. This bill tries to say that, oh, no, you can still talk to a teacher. You can still talk to a counselor. It's just these classroom discussions that never actually happen. But what? I really wanted our members to know is this is not just about uh, these un these classroom discussions you can't name. 
this is about targeting. And what it does is it puts fear. It puts fear in a teacher to help a student. It puts fear in a student to talk about what they may be struggling or even questioning with. When we think about it, I, I remember in, in high school, I questioned everything, questioned taxes, questioned religion, questioned all of these things. And sometimes you may not be comfortable talking with a parent about that, but you may have a teacher. And, and so this to me is just another way of the backlash that we are seeing from the radical right who feel like they are losing the political majority. And the only way they can win it is by hoping, because if you think about it, these bills never really targeted gay adults or our companies talking about nope. diversity, equity, and inclusion. It's always education and it's always young That's people. Right. And I believe it's a converted effort to say like, hey, we don't think our views are holding on anymore. So instead of losing this war, we'll hopefully convince people to be conservatives because they won't know anything other. They won't know anything it. else. That's uh, it. And that's what we got to be more forceful on. You know, Devontae Lewis was once President Obama's high school coordinator for Louisiana. And now he has been elected to represent District 3 on the Louisiana Public Service Commission. Sir, you make me proud to be an American. And I look forward to uh, you running for other offices in the future. What is the best way, sir, for um, our listeners and folks who aren't your constituents from Louisiana to learn more about your office and the work you're doing? Absolutely. Well, we are a very uh, visible office. So you can find us on Twitter at Devontae Lewis. On Instagram at Devante for LA, Facebook Devante for LA, or visit um, our website at Devante for LA.com and you can uh, sign up on our email list or just click follow on uh, Instagram and Twitter and Facebook and see all of the things that we're doing, talking about, and stay engaged with us. Commissioner Lewis, your work is very inspiring. Thank you so much for joining us on SiriusXM. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. And we'll be right back. Hey everybody, it's Michael Steele, host of the Michael Steele Podcast. Each week, I discuss key political and cultural issues joined by America's leading activists, experts, and academics for conversations that transcend political boundaries. And that's the point. I want you to join me as we work through real solutions, have honest conversations, just keeping it real, and having a little fun on the side. So listen to the Michael Steele podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Spreaker, or wherever you get your podcasts on, because you know I love it when you do. Welcome back. Uh, listen, I will always admit when I'm wrong about something, and one of the most grievous crimes I've committed against nature is we have not had Lawrence Ross on this show in way too long. Lawrence is the author of seven books, including Blackball, The Black and White Politics of Race on America's Campuses, and the LA Times bestseller, The Divine Nine, The History of African-American Fraternities and Sororities. He's lectured at over 700 colleges and universities, has his BA in History from UCLA, and of course, the MFA in Screenwriting from the UCLA School of Theater, Film and TV, which means we can talk about fun shit, too. Lawrence Ross, welcome back. Happy Juneteenth. It's great to see you. Thank you so much. It is wonderful always to see you. And as always, I always say uh, my wife says hello. She is one of your biggest fans. Tell your wife I said hello as well. And listen, uh, it's great that, you know, I'm here in L.A. Uh, after we in New York got to experience L.A. levels of smog. I saw you mocking us on Twitter last week. It was pretty disgusting. Well, you know, you're, you're, talking, to, you're talking to a young man who grew up during smog alerts. You know, mm -hmm. where we couldn't go outside and, you know, there would be like level three, level four. And it was the equivalent of smoking a pack of Newports, you know, going outside and watching 
everyone, you know, in New York, you know, looked through the haze. I just was like, oh, look at y'all. You, it's like when y'all have a, a, a an earthquake. You know, everyone panics and tells about, oh, man, but that 3.5 earthquake was so big. And we just, it's, it's just <laughs> to be like the epitome. I love New York, but I swear to God, it is one of those things that if, if it happens in New York, it's the first time you've ever seen anything happen. So, oh, right. Uh, yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. You know what? Next time there's rain, we'll have that conversation with you, California people. How about that? All right. We can explain well, phenomena like weather to you. Well, I'm already complaining to the manager of California. Uh, because I'm not getting my 75 degrees in sun every particular day. So it's outside right now. It's overcast and I didn't, I don't pay for that. So (laughs) I want to, I want to quote one of your, one of your tweets that has stayed with me the, for, for a few days now, you had written the GOP is a white nationalist party akin to the national party in South Africa during apartheid. If your goal is to not deconstruct the GOP and make them powerless versus collaborating with them, then you are not for black people. And we've discussed in the past many times about how the new racism is the denial of racism and how the cloaking devices are always shifting, right? The bias is always the same. The the white fragility and and closeted, you know, white supremacy is always the same. But the, the, the window dressing changes a lot. And it seems that this year's model is attacking DEI in the private sector, even for people who can't spell DEI. It's just like, oh, <laughs> someone's trying to make things less shitty for non-heterosexual white males. Let's attack that. Yeah, it's one of those things you have to always real realize that, you know, when we talk about white supremacy or even just the misogyny or sexism or homophobia, it's all about basically saying, I don't want to see you. Yeah. I don't want to see you as human beings. And so it's always a domino effect. That's the reason why if you're in a sexual minority, if you're in a racial minority or you're in a a gender minority, you're going to always feel the ramifications of these people who want to always make it about uh, keeping power for themselves. And they want to keep the struggle, uh, the, the structure for themselves. And the reason why I compared the GOP to the Nationalist Party is that. The Nationalist Party was the exact same thing in terms of the idea that there's a demogra- uh, demographic um, certainty that, you know, your country is going is a majority black country, that demographics are always going to just dictate what the what the country is going to be. So what do they right. do? They consolidate rule in terms of a minority rule. And I actually would study everything from the Broderbund, which was a, a South African uh, society for most Afrikaners, uh, which was kind of like your dark money, you know, from the, you know, of the, you know, the 1940s, 1950s, they kept this minority rule. Well, the GOP is quite, you know, the same. What they're trying to do is they're trying to create minority rule, at least for the next 40 or 50 years. So that you have it uh, on every area, whether or not we're talking about gerrymandering uh, districts in states, so where basically a minority can get 60% of the representation and 40% goes to the, you know, a representation goes to the group that gets the majority of uh, right. votes, or whether or not you're talking about at the, at the judicial level, putting in people who are, you know, 39 years old uh, to be lifetime uh, justice on the on the on the courts. Um, all this is designed to codify. But I also yes, talk about the yes. fact, yeah, all these things mean that they're losing. These are not things that they're winning. They're losing. <laughs> and the reason why you do these desperate measures is because this is the last thing that you have. That's it. And it doesn't mean, yeah, it doesn't mean that we don't have pain and struggle. You know, when people attack DEI, that's not, I, I speak to way that's too going many. Out, 
going after trans kids, going after refugees. It's just we don't have anything to offer non-millionaires on a legislative basis. So we're here to scare you and let you, the white majority, believe you are under siege from an all-powerful, ultimately powerless minority. That's the game. And what's fun- Yeah, but what's funny is that the youth and everyone always puts their hopes in the youth and then they grow older and the adage is that they get more conservative. I don't even actually believe that. But one of the things that I've seen, yeah, one of the things I've seen is that I I always say white students aren't dumb. They see people who are their friends and people who they've grown up with and they see, uh, you know, their inner, their relationships. They still have the structures that they have to deal with in terms of the, the, the structures that they have to understand. But for the most part, they're recognizing, wait a second, my life doesn't go, you know, to crap because a, a transgender person is in my uh, <laughs> in my presence and I'm having a conversation with them. The people who are scared are the ones who want to scare, but they keep losing elections. And that's, that's the thing. They- that's the thing. And, and let's bring the Sanders into this then, because, again, yeah. you know, we're, we're talking about the, the attack on DEI. To me, it just seems like a generation ago, it was the, the attack on affirmative action, which they didn't understand. Yeah. So they lied and said it was about quotas. They're doing the same right. thing now by saying having DEI is somehow there to be racist against white people, which isn't technically possible, according to the dictionary. But right. what do we see with with we saw them? They, they tried this and they were able to squeak by in 2016. But the voters of America, and I'm talking about that big amorphous glob of white folks in the middle, those undecided moderates, they rejected this nationalist agenda in 2018 and again in 2020 and again in 22. Lawrence, they keep running for the GOP nomination for things, but ignoring the fact you've got to win over other people in the general. And DeSantis and Trump are both playing this game. And it just seems like, are they just myopic? Do they just not be able to see past their next meal? Well, DeSantis always proves the point that just going to Harvard does not make you smart. <laughs> I, w. Bush did that too. You're right. Oh, we've got. I got a long list. I can. I can go from uh, <laughs> to Ted Kaczynski. I got them all. I got them all there. So, and and nothing against people who go to Harvard, but you know, there's kind of a normal thought process. DeSantis. Uh, is a tin pot authoritarian, want to be authoritarian. We've seen this before. We've seen this when uh, the Red Scare in the 1950s, right, where everything was communist and we were going to basically label everything as being, you know, the other. Well, DeSantis is just jumping on with this notion. You know, he's, you know, he's supposedly kind of the acceptable Trump-like person, but he's just basically jumping on the idea that his cruelty in terms of his outward cruelty knows no bounds. And so, right. therefore, if if I've got to be a human uh, trafficker, I'm going to ship uh, migrants from one place to the other because I don't have any sense of humanity. Um, if I'm going to get rid of diversity, equity and inclusion, I'm going to do it because I don't care about minorities. People, you know, hey, Bill Clinton has had a lot of things, but he did say the one thing is that people are attracted to, you know, a lot of times to, to wrong and strong versus weak and right. That's it. Yeah. Um, Americans but, would rather vote for someone wrong and strong than weak and right. He was correct. But 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 that's also being tested because I think that there's a naked cravenness to them. It is not like 30 years ago when 40 years ago in Reaganomics or, you know, the Bush era wasn't as craven, you know, in terms of shifting wealth to uh, to various uh, classes and and making other classes you know, the the, the uh, more permanent versus actually, you know, having programs, not saying that they're they're any less evil. But what I'm saying here is that they're so desperate that they're specifically targeting right. these groups. And there's something to be said about 
when leaders do it, it gives an okay for the little person because there's no moral. That's no it. Moral. That's it. I yeah. mean, look at look at the so, rise in the rise in anti-Semitic incidents, the rise in anti-Latino incidents, the rise in anti-Asian bigotry over the former guy saying China virus and Kung flu. I mean, there's a corollary yeah. on all of this. The only thing I'll disagree with you about, Lawrence, is when you said that Ron DeSantis's cruelty knows no bounds. I think it does. I think his cruelty is confined to non-white and non-heterosexual groups consistently right. it's punching down against the marginalized whether it's transgender kids whether it's the christian refugees at our border and the migrants whether it's killing ap african-american studies in the state of florida it's consistently punching down against the most powerless because you've made a cynical bet that that's how you get elected nationwide because it worked four elections ago but to your original point sir i i, I think you're right young people see through this bullshit yeah, and in fact, but it, what kills me is because actually the AP that um, it's funny that you brought up the AP course. Uh, they actually came uh, to my club and asked me to give them their impressions of what they had done. And I said, the only way that tin pot authoritarians actually win is when you acquiesce to them. And right. and I and I, there was and I told them there was really no reason for you to do so. I said, Ron DeSantis is only going to be here for X amount of years. AP courses have been here forever. So why would you actually give your power willingly away to a person who is just using you as a cause? He can't do anything. He cannot do anything because unless he's just going to tell the millions of, of, of college students out there that they're suddenly not going to be able to take AP courses, which we're going to allow them to get into the Harvards of the world in which he went to. That's or, it. you know, where I'm, you know, University of California, Berkeley and UCLA. If you're not going to be able to do all that, he's the one under pressure. But the minute that you acquiesce to it, well, then he's got you. And that is always the sin. Never, ever blink for toward the bullies who are trying to to do malignant things to society. Never, ever blink when you're dealing with that. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back after this. Hey, all. Glenn Kirshner here. So, friends, I hope you'll join me on my audio podcast, Justice Matters. Do you care about ethics in government, criminal justice reform, a conflict-free federal judiciary? I thought so. On Justice Matters, we take on issues involving the need to reform our government and its institutions. And we talk about real, achievable reform. I hope you'll join us. Look for Justice Matters wherever you usually get your podcasts. Welcome back. So let me ask, how how culpable is the media in all of this? I mean, we can talk about what the Republican politicians are doing, but they have a delivery system for all of this double talk and jive and all of this hate. And you've talked quite a bit about the media on air and online. I'm curious, what are your thoughts about how news coverage has evolved in the past couple of election cycles and, and what we should be expecting for the next election season? Well, I think when we, you know, we've all talked about the monetization of of news. And so with the monetization of news, what happens is oftentimes people are just basically looking for clicks in or, you know, eyeballs versus the actual news. And Trump was perfect for that. You know, the, you know, we've seen we're seeing that with uh, the uh, CNN guy, Chris, I forgot his last name, who just actually Licked. resigned. Licked. Yeah, Chris Licked who just re- resigned. And, you know, after that terrible town hall meeting, you would think that we've literally learned no no lesson. The problem with the media oftentimes and I'm an old 
uh, the National Association of Black Journalists member. I'm, I think I still have my dues there. Um, yeah, so I started uh, as a reporter like 25 years ago. Um, is that the media has to stop amplifying what Trump is trying to amplify. And I mean it in this. Yes. We all know the emperor has no clothes. That is perfectly fine, right? It's perfectly fine for a reporter to talk about what he was, you know, his legal problems and all the rest of it. But he's going out there. He's smart. He's not as stupid as people think. He has no power. So what he does, he creates whatever he wants you to divert to. And what that does, it amplifies this notion that he has power. So what does the media do? So he says, well, you know, I'm out here and this is all a witch hunt. We've heard it all, all before. And then the media comes back and says, well, has he lost any of his base? And his base is still going to come you know, with him without explaining that, you know what? You can be a very big fish in a very small pond, That's meaning it. that you can be 35 percent of the Republican Party uh, and have a base. That's perfectly fine. But that 35 percent is of a shrinking party. Yes. It is not of a 50-50 party. It is a, a people who are just being willowed out, winnowed out as independents and who says give them 70-30. 30% are not going to vote. Uh, you say 70% are going to vote uh, a uh, how they've always voted, but 30% aren't. And that's the margins in these victories. But every time the media comes back and says, basically, the monster in the closet is there. There's a monster in the closet. There's a monster in the closet. He's going to eat us. Trump is, he can win. He's going to do these things. You're doing what he wants, which is to give him power where he doesn't have power. And that's the reason why people keep, you know, scratching media, scratch their head. And they say, we don't understand why the numbers don't go down in terms of his approval ratings, because anyone else with these type of allegations would go down. Well, you keep telling people they shouldn't worry about it. Forget about Fox News. You know, that's a whole other industry. But CNN, (laughs) MSNBC. All the rest of them, New York Times, which is typically one of the worst, have to stop enabling. Treat him. My biggest thing is always this. Treat him like he was suddenly turned black. And you would see see how they would change left and right. They were like, this is impossible for him. We're not even going to cover these lies. They would would so marginalize him that he would be a person. Yeah. So, yeah, it's... It's, it, yeah, they keep giving him life. I mean, if the media is able to stop talking about Kanye at the juiciest time, they can stop talking about Trump, right? Yes, yes. And they both <laughs> They just dropped him. The crazier Kanye got, eventually, like, ooh, too much. He's off Twitter now. Let's stop talking. And that was the end of it. That was it. Hanging out with Nazis, bringing literal Nazis to Trump's house, and then he goes away. No, all done. Yeah, and the, the, the excuse that was saying, well, he's the uh, the leading candidate of a major party. That's their problem. That <laughs> is their problem. You know, and, and, the, and the, the big question is the other part of this is which as an old reporter, I just can't even understand. And I'm talking about as a reporter who just was doing local Los Angeles things is the fact that uh, most reporters who are interviewing the folks who they know have talking points. OK, that's great. Yeah. All politicians have talking points, but there's no sense of understanding how to follow up with facts in real time versus this you know both sides isms type of of reporting which is infuriating to the viewers who are who are who have facts at their hand this is not i just watch msnbc and you know i'm just gonna always be against the gop no if a person has facts i'm gonna go oh that's a good point 
If not, I'm going to go, why aren't you asking this question? Why aren't you asking this question? And we've lost that. We lost that bit. I, that's that why was, I kind of, I wish for the seventies back in the day. That was my big frustration with the corporate media for both the, the don't say gay law in Florida and the stupid and stupidly named stop woke act in Florida. You know, yeah. they, they finally found a way are fascists because they're creative to not actually censor people for talking about marginalized groups, but to allow any freaking Yahoo out there to sue any school. If someone mentions things about marginalized groups that makes a white child or a straight child feel uncomfortable for five minutes, right. it's all white and right. heterosexual sexual fragility the media could not find the time to go deep enough into why these laws are so insidious and and dishonest which is part and parcel because a lot of the media is not that diverse so if you don't have people who are producers who actually understand diversity equity inclusion or or uh, uh sexual orientation or uh even just you know the idea that perhaps and this is what i talk about to my students you know, the idea of, say, for example, white supremacy is that the natural uh, order is that uh, whiteness is is human. And yeah. anything done outside of that is, uh, you know, that's an aberration. Say, for example, as bad as an aberration. Those of us who are non-white are outsider others who have to prove their humanity. Right. So if you're a producer and you're looking at the anti-woke you know, uh, and the don't say gay policies, you're in your white producer, your thought process is that it, it might not be what we think it is. Right. Yeah. Cause you're not yeah. taking it from this aspect of me. No, 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 no. This person really is the villain. You're looking, you keep looking for, you know, like great aspects of them and no, 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 this is literally what it is. That's what the people targeted are always right. saying. No, they're targeting me. This is anti-black. This is anti-gay. This, these things are all done you know, to together. And it takes time and time. By that time, either two things are happening in the media. The media either begins to mimic the language and, you know, the bar for You're where right. we have the discussion it's is, so horrible. is so true. So right. So it reminds me of the, uh, the ab abortion, um, uh, uh, that used to frustrate me forever, the abortion argument. And as, as a, as a person who is, is, is pro-choice, I'd always understand. I, I used to wonder why are we arguing on their space? Basically yes. saying, you know, well, why are we saying, well, we want exceptions up to no, no, no. Abortion should be a right for women to make a choice of their bodies whenever, whenever yeah. it's not my choice. It's their right. It's not, I'm not going, well, 16 to 24. It's just going to get whittled down till you get to the point where it was overturned. Well, the exact same thing happens a lot of times in the media where people will sit back and say, well, let's talk about whether or not, quote unquote, this misrepresentation of what woke is. Right. But a definition as defined by DeSantis, which usually requires some absurd, you know, type of, you know, type of example, which gets people going, well, I don't want to be like so that. True. And so that, true. And that defines it. And, and that's what the, the media will perpetuate. And then you have people who go, well, I can see it both sides. There's extremists on both sides. And we're like, no. Oh, yeah, both sides. But the way this is, this is, the, and the, the right wing nailed this framing and the media ate it up when it came to comparing the terrorist attack 
on our capital on January 6, 2021, with 32 million people protesting around the world against police murdering an unarmed black man. And in those 32 million, under half of 1% committed some violent acts of vandalism as opposed because they're protesting murder as opposed to people who were committing terrorism to do- overthrow democracy in the name of a lie. And you know what? The January 6th rioters and the BLM people, I mean, both sides do it and they run because, with this. Because who is human? Who is human? That's who it. Who is not human? And the person who is, if you ask, you know, the two different people, right? Let's just say, let's just say all these all these uh, GOP folks who are suddenly against the police, right? So it's just the most Orwellian <laughs> thing in the world for me. So okay, a couple of years ago, you all were like, "Back the blue," uh, uh-huh. you know, the, the, the <laughs> oh, blue yeah. line. Yeah, oh, yeah, you know. Now, now, now it's fuck hey, the police. <laughs> like, and I was like, wait a second weren't like the Democrats just running away from any notion that they were defunding the police. Like, I know Biden was <laughs> oh, like, we're going to hey, defund the FBI. We'll defund the FBI. <laughs> right. Now they're trying to defund the FBI. I'm like, do you literally understand what you're saying? I mean, do you actually even understand? But we've, we've lost two different things. We've lost this notion of integrity and we've lost this notion of hypocrisy because the one thing that, that Trump did is that he opened up an id that just was like flowed, right? So all the bad things that you all wanted to do as a person, right? All the bad impulses that you ever had, which human beings typically say, you know something, I don't really like that guy, but I'm not gonna go punch him, right? You know, I don't really, I don't like that guy, but I'm not gonna call him a name, but you know, I'll just go back home and talk about it privately, right? Right. Trump just opened it all up and people were like, this is a great society. So it's like this topic. So they're all doing those things. So now we have people who, no matter what it is, well, first of all, they're, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene and those people are, are just so wackadoodle. It's not even fun, funny. Um, although I do, in her defense, I always say the House of Representatives has always been home to, you know, crazy people. So it's not sure. like she's the first but she's sure. the latest crazy person uh, in, in, in the House of Representatives. But you have these people who now suddenly have gotten fame, power, and the ability to affect people's lives. Um, but I think Peter's going to break. I'm, I am so optimistic because um, I, now, I think the fever is going to break in a number of different ways. Um, a... Uh, <laughs> Trump is going to have way too many lawsuits. I mean, you know... I would give him this. If he gets out of all these lawsuits without a single charge or, you know, going to jail, hat tip to him. Because that means he's been a grifter who figured it out. He I can't see how he can figure it out. Um, but the fever is going to break because when, the minute that he actually is going to go to jail, which I think is going to happen, for even for this judge who's overseeing, he's going to go to jail. Um Everybody, in the, everyone, uh, everyone in the GOP is going to deny Trump like Peter denied Jesus. Okay. Oh, yeah, they will. They will. (laughs) They deny George W. Bush now. They finally threw George W. Bush under the bus because Donald Trump gave them permission to. And I got to ask you one quick question in our in our final minutes, because I got I got to ask you about something you have spoken. I want to ask you about the trap of hypermasculinity, because you've spoken so beautifully in the past on our show about all the different reasons why some black men yeah. could swing to the far right and support mm-hmm. a racist like Donald Trump and others of his ilk. Do yeah. you do you see this yeah. changing in the near future or will this 
small but alarming voting demographic grow? So there are two different things happening at, 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 at once. And I always tell people that sexism, misogyny, hey, those things are timeless. So black men have the exact same issues in terms of having to deal with it. Now, 85 percent of us vote for Democrats. We've always done, but not as a large group. We have special issues that we have to deal with. Uh, mass incarceration, uh, disempowerment, job, all those things. But one of the things that occurs is that there are two factors happening. I'm not the only person who's talked about this. Roland Martin has talked about this, yeah. too, during the last uh, election. The Democratic Party doesn't know how to speak to black men. And it's not like there's a, a specific you know thing that you have to say that's special to black men. But you have to talk about black men in the exact same way people want to be seen as a demographic. Hey, you're a business owner. I'm a, I'm a business owner raising a family. What are the policies that are going to really help me in terms of the health care from raising my family and my kid and in grad school? How are these things going to help me and speak to me? Because when you don't, it's a vacuum and nature abhors a vacuum. And here comes the person with the shiny thing says, hey, don't worry about uh, the racism part. Not you. Yeah, yeah, you're not the person that we're actually talking about. We're talking about those other people, okay, that you don't really like in the first place. And when we basically get power, you're going to have a place at the table. And what happens is uh, there's multiple generations with one up I'm part of uh, that have grown up. And I love hip hop. I'm an ex, I want to say this before, but ex uh, uh, hip hop magazine editor. But mm -hmm. hip hop has always been transactional. And hip hop has always been about, hey, taking money, getting power, and then going into those spaces. You know, a 50 Cent, the person that took the money, got some power, now he's in te television spaces. A lot of time that breeds a lot of uh, bad, uh, you know, a lot of capitalism bad, but a really bad capitalism in terms of your ideas of like what is best in terms of a sociological or community is less than what it is for you as a person or your own interests. And that is the place that a Steve Bannon is trying to drive a wedge in. And if the Democrats don't start speaking to it, they're going to start culling people off. That's right, because Steve Bannon is spending dark right wing money to reach black men right now. And Democrats should be aware of that. Lawrence Ross, it is so good to have you back. I despise you for not running for office because I want to vote for you for something someday. What is the oh, best oh, no. way? What is the best way for our evil army of the night to follow you and keep up with all your doings? They can always follow me on Instagram or they can follow me on Twitter with the same address, Alpha, A-L-P-H-A, 1906, and I'll see him there. Thank you so much for joining us. I am looking forward to having you back a lot more in the coming months as we go into indictment year and election year at the same time. I care about politics again. My burnout is done. Trump has healed me. <laughs> we shall do it live stream. <laughs> Thank you, Lawrence. It's a blessing to see you. Be well. Thanks, we'll be right man. back. Thank you. This is Serious XM.